This is the Educational Triage Podcast. This week, we are delighted to have Liz Keeble back again for more insights on metacognition. Liz hails from the UK, where she began as a biologist with a focus on the brain before she moved to become a high school science teacher, where she always taught brain-friendly methods. She specialized in talented and gifted. She worked with adults and students as a tutor. She has provided bespoke courses and packets for students, volunteers, community leaders, for businesses. She's done it all. And she has the credentials to back her up because she's always getting more credentials and she's always finding better ways to serve the needs of the community around her. There is so much that I cannot say because we don't have time for that. But if you check the show notes, it's all there along with contact information. So please join me in welcoming Liz Keeble. And welcome everyone. And today I am joined with Liz Keeble. Hi, Liz. Hi, Tony. Liz is the master of (laughs) metacognition development. And so we are thrilled to have her back today, and she's going to give us some better clarity on how to develop metacognition and what is actually going on inside the student's head while we're sitting there going blah, 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 and handing them out these papers. So Liz, if you'd like to take it away, how would you, first, could we talk about how you would define metacognition? Yeah, sure. Um, Within education, it's come to be known as thinking about thinking, which to me doesn't really explain what you're doing. Um, John Flavel was the, the chap who thought about needing something that was more than just what learning was, but he wanted to kind of describe Um, how we're doing that learning. He came up with the word metacognition based around the idea that cognition is um, all the skills that we need in order to learn. So picking up knowledge, being able to use it, understand it. And that's kind of all requires uh, cognition. But if we put the word meta on the front, then meta kind of turns attention on the thinking itself thing because it means rising above or going beyond something. So we're rising above the cognition or the the learning itself as a mind turning attention on itself uh, to think about how it's learning. So that's in relation to education. That's how it's come to be kind of understood within education. But more recently, scientific research has shown that it's related to the decision-making part of the brain. Um, The the scientists were looking at trying to find a a piece of the brain that they thought would be where metacognition happens, and they couldn't find that. But what they did find was it's definitely related to the decision-making part of the brain um, in the reasoning part, which is kind of in the frontal cortex here. So that turns it into an adult skill that we all need in order to stay on track for the life that we want. We are um, helped, if you like, through the metacognitive process to make decisions that are in our own best interests. Um, And if you then relate that back to education, 
it then means it's a skill that is needed to analyse whether what we're thinking or the way that we're thinking will actually get the desired results. So either way, it boils down to being able to change your mind if necessary based on what you find. If you, you go inside your own head, find out what's in there, find out what parts of your, your thinking are working for you and what parts are not working and then being able to change your mind in order to get a different result. And I'm convinced that the large percentage of students are not yet thinking that way. The most able students are. That's how they get the results they're getting because they're able to use metacognition, metacognition and reason things out that way. But I would say that there are so many students who have not yet learned how to think that way and that holds them back. What is the process by which a student learns how to achieve metacognition? So what is pre-metacognition and pseudo-metacognition all the way up to gainfully employing the process? Yeah, yeah. And, and that is the difficulty, is that, that um, all children seem to develop cognition quite naturally, we all have an ability to learn from birth onwards without any difficulty. So barring any, any serious health issues, all children learn a great deal before they ever start school. Um, and that comes from their own experiences. So um, it depends on what opportunities they've been exposed to, um, what they learn, and therefore what they're holding inside their head. Because um, obviously, when they come into school, into formal education for the first time, uh, what they have already got inside their head has a huge bearing on where they go from there from an educational point of view. And what they carry inside their heads has been affected by um, a lot of other things. So is it all right with you if I explain why um, metacognition doesn't develop naturally for some children in the way that, meta the way that cognition on its own does? I would love it. Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's because there's all these these factors. That's the problem. Is there's so many factors that impact on a child's um, mental development anyway, um, and it's a bit scary. But I am going to read a list of the factors that can impact, and this isn't necessarily fully comprehensive, but it includes physical disabilities, autistic spectrum disorders, language barriers executive function disorders, the impact of trauma, specific learning difficulties, previous poor learning experiences, the disadvantage gap where they've had limited opportunities, a disrupted education, which applies to almost every child on the planet by now, um, a poor self-concept and a reliance on technology, and that's a, that's a growing reliance on technology. And all of those things can cause a delay in normal cognitive development, but even more so on the development of metacognition. So if I give you one or two examples from that list, it's a very long list, and they will all impact on a student's ability to develop metacognition because they all get in the way of development one way or another. We mm -hmm. don't have time to discuss all of them, obviously, but just to pick one or two, um, one of them, for instance, is, is, is trauma. 
Mm-hmm. So that's because the, the more emotional part of the brain comes to the fore uh, when anybody experiences trauma and it, it leaves kind of an indelible mark, if you like, that is that lays down a more emotional way of responding from then onwards. So it leaves difficulties behind with um, memory and with reasoning, both of which are needed for metacognition. And it tends to leave a person on quite high alert So focusing becomes difficult because the emotional part of the brain is dominating even when they're trying to concentrate. And remember what we said is that that metacognition is about being able to rummage around inside your own head and deal with what you find there. And obviously someone who's been through a traumatic experience often doesn't want to go inside their own heads. Um, It's a scary place to be. And they have difficulty dealing with what they find there because often it's the the fear that's been left behind from the traumatic experience. So just in thinking about that, my my role has been to help students who haven't developed metacognition for whatever reason. Um, And what I found in this situation, I've helped several students who have experienced trauma, is that you can help them if you focus on helping them with their education. Now, sometimes they need some kind of therapy to help them with the, the, the trauma. But if you're someone who is focusing on them um, doing well within education, which is obviously where I come in, um, we need to separate the two. And so what I found works is to engage with them in an academic way, deal with facts, leave all the emotion out of it, and they get to the point where they start feeling safe about discussing the brain. I, with other students, I talk about their brain, but I don't do that with, with students who've experienced trauma. Uh, we talk about the brain as a kind of a factual, um, in, a, in an academic way, and, and how it works. And by doing that and getting them to feel comfortable with facts, I found that I can gradually lead them to conversations about their own success in education but without any reference to the past and you kind of circumnavigate if you like the issues that they've had so that it doesn't impact that emotional part doesn't impact on the educational side of their progress so that's that's just something that that I found I've been able to do um, over the years the one of the other things sorry go on oh I really like the fact that you talk about safety with trauma because We just finished with Jennifer Achari from Queensland University of Technology, Mm -hmm. and she discussed trauma for the last three episodes. And safety is number one. That's paramount, yeah. Exactly. And so once you have that, um, and then my other question is, and it keeps rumbling around, is Peter Gray. He talks about the fact that students need to be able to explore things on their own. Is that something that might actually help with them? You know, what's something you want to look at and then have them do the exploration on their own and then they can get into it and that kind of gets them going? Is that another process that they might look at? It is. And that's actually closely related to um, what I was going to say next about the use of technology. So I'll bring that in at this point Um, is that, Although technology obviously has its place and it is supportive at times for some students, an excessive use of it while young has a negative impact on the development of metacognition. And that's because decisions that we make, even even as young children, the decisions that we make are guided by a database that has built up in the subconscious mind. 
And that database is created from personal experience, the, the way that we interact with our environment from babies onwards. And obviously in school, as you were saying, that interacting um, with learning um, needs to create a personal experience. And a lot of teaching doesn't do that. So anything that involves a child in um, being totally involved in and having a personal experience in relation to the learning is definitely going to help because they're, they're, uh, stronger memory traces are formed from um, anything where we, we are completely involved as a, an individual within the experience itself. Um, and a, a digital environment has its place, obviously, but it reduces interactions with the real world. So uh, if you think about how children learn to crawl and then walk and talk, the reason they do that is based on the curiosity that they have to be able to, to reach things, get to places, find stuff out, touch things. So that whole curiosity leads to experiences that they have. It's why they start moving around. Um, and so not using that inbuilt curiosity and that inbuilt desire to find out uh, is actually quite detrimental. Um, I remember reading, I can't remember the details, I'm afraid, but I remember reading once um, a bit of research where they were comparing a group of uh, children in Africa who were around seven years old and a similar group in, I don't remember whether it was the US or Europe, but the combination of two completely different cultures. Um, and what they found was that the, although the, the, the children from the US or the UK or Europe or wherever it was um, had, had been exposed to all kinds of educational experiences, they were watching Sesame Street <laughs> and other educational programs. They were going to um, play group. They were going to um, educational experiences that were preschool experiences. And yet they found that the seven-year-old children in Africa who had done nothing but play for seven years were considered more intelligent, more able to think for themselves and were able to solve problems in a way that the other children were not, despite all that educational input, if you like. So that life experience is really important. Right. And I think Peter Gray talks about that and says that... Um, play is evolutionary learning yeah and so it That's develops exactly right. because it teaches you the social mores and norms it teaches you yeah. about survival it teaches you about interacting yeah. in the world and um which has far more impact than yeah. sitting down in front of the television yeah and that is creating the database on which we base decisions for the rest of our lives so you can imagine the limited database that's going to come from a child who has been sat in front of a computer screen um, for some time. Um, and then the other thing that, that makes a difference is, and that, that is part of the problem, is the education system itself, because it's set up for students to be passive learners. And if you think about the fact that there are not all children, but obviously you've got a large proportion of students who don't really want to be there. They're there against their will uh, because they have to be. And then when they get there, we tell them to sit still, be quiet, listen to me, get on with your work. I mean, there's, they're rarely asked to think for themselves and they get told what to do, what to think, how to do it, how to think it. So metacognition 
isn't really given a chance to develop at all and in fact is quite stifled by that kind of atmosphere so it's not only what a child brings with them into school from previous experiences whether they are developing metacognition or not it depends on how they're taught when they get there and if you the majority of schools um, are still teaching in that very old-fashioned way where the students are not expected to think for themselves and therefore metacognition doesn't develop. So are you saying then, let me rumble this around in my brain, that <laughs> we program students how to think yeah. on our terms and don't allow that to happen naturally so they aren't able to develop the metacognitive skills mm -hmm. that are necessary for them to move on in life and yeah. be really we, productive. We don't teach them how to think. We te What we teach them is how to memorize things mm -hmm. because they will be assessed. They will be exams um, that they have to try and pass. And so we spend our time um, helping them to learn the things that we, we dictate <laughs> what they need to know in order to pass exams that we set for them to check that they have learned what we expect them to know. And that does away completely with that natural instinctive curiosity that we were talking about earlier on. That's, that's the way natural learning takes place, is, some, is a child becomes fascinated by something and engages with it in order to learn from it. That's a natural process. Whereas if we, if we say, no, you, you mustn't be doing that, we drag them away from what they're interested in, what they want to do, and what they're actually learning from in order to teach them a load of facts that they may or may not need, um, which is a completely different concept altogether. So... Are you saying then that the multiple choice test, for example, or the fill in the blank test, that they should go out the window and we should instead ask the child, what is it that you understood about what we just did? Yeah, or we need a what lot is, more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the, I mean, the, the idea of the, the kind of the, the gapping exercises that you were saying are fine when you're helping a student to learn and they need some kind of scaffolding. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to actually testing what they know, um, we, I mean, my, my suggestion for that would be to say to a, a group of children, what do you know about? And then throw it at them as a pebble and see what happens. And just find out what they know, what they remember. And then you can throw in an extra bit that something like, well, what if I told you? And then just give them another fact and throw it in and see how that impacts on their thinking. And for me, in, in school, for children to develop metacognition, they really need to hear everybody's thinking out loud. Because it, it is about thinking. It goes way beyond thinking about thinking, which is an academic activity. It's about understanding what's going on inside your own head. But unless you've seen that modelled, some children are never, gonna, never going to understand what that actually means. So if they have seen it in action, if they have seen conversations out loud and see how other people are thinking and the, and the teacher can manage that, then the teacher knows what people are thinking. Um, and students who are not used to doing it will will um, model themselves on what they see other students doing. And then you can all think together and learn together collaboratively. And that's a far more effective way and, and takes all the students together. 
it doesn't mean that the able ones kind of go shooting off on their own and you leave the the, the students that struggle behind the teacher is able to hold it all together and challenge more the the able students but also make sure that the, the struggling students can keep up because they're part of that collaborative whole so you do some sort of jigsaw structure with cooperative learning maybe yeah and then yeah. but you have to have a very safe environment i would think in order for yes. the students who don't let's who don't know a thing about what you're talking about or have never heard it and they don't want to look stupid yeah. so they won't they're unwilling to participate for that very reason yeah. and so exactly. how do you how do you get through that so that they are able to successfully understand and start opening up so that they can their little vessels can be filled yeah. a little more <laughs> yeah they, you need to set it up that way that from the beginning a teacher has to set the ethos in their own classroom um, and when I was teaching, I always had other teachers say to me, how come you can get this particular child or this particular group of children to, to answer up in your class? How come they join in in your lessons and they won't join in in my lessons? Um, but it was the way that I set it up. What, what It was kind of it was um, collaborative and each student understood that they had something to give and they knew that even what we would call wrong answers contributed because if a child comes up with what's going you then know what's going on in their head and it may be the the wrong thing but at least if it's out in the open you can discuss it and then the rest of the group can work out why that's wrong and that person has contributed and and getting something wrong is seen as a positive thing because they've helped the class lead to the correct answer so if you if you create it like that where it's completely safe and all answers are acceptable because what you're asking them to do is share what they're thinking and all we're doing is thinking out loud, then they can share genuinely what they're thinking without fear of it being wrong or of making a mistake because every mistake helps lead the whole class to the, the understanding or the mastery that you're after. So let's say that you have a cup, one or two, maybe three or four children who are affected by trauma in that same class. Mm-hmm. How is that the same yeah. MO? Are you going to go through that same process in order to get them to participate and be there yeah. so that they're more in the moment rather than trying to access that scary corner in their brain's attic? Exactly. As long as you create the safe environment, as long as the other students aren't going to start commenting if they say something, um, then they will join in like everybody else. And and as you said, the important thing is about um, with some classes, I would create um, an emotion on purpose because it, emotional responses have create a stronger memory trace. So sometimes if you want to kind of get them thinking, you can throw in um, something that has an emotional side to it, you know, an ethical question or something that you know is going to get them arguing about something. Um, you wouldn't do that if you knew there were children in the room that had that had trauma, then um, I would avoid doing that. I would avoid the emotional side of things. But you can certainly go down any academic route and encourage them to to join in. It, it, it develops over time. Um, I've been able to get all students to respond uh, one way and another over time. Excellent. That's that gives hope. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's about how you do it. I think part of it is that you have to be able to first you have to formulate some sort of 
environment yeah. at the very get-go yeah. in order for students to start believing that they are there for a reason and that they are safe, that it's more of a family-type yeah. atmosphere. And I don't mean a dysfunctional family. I mean a family where we can take care of each other, a real community. Yeah, exactly. The word community. I used to use the term community of inquiry mm-hmm. so that like they that. are learning together. They're finding out things together. You can call them find-outers with younger children. You know, We're a group of find-outers. Mm-hmm. Let's find out about um, – and, and, and always using the term we – so you include yourself as, as part of the group. It's not you and them. It's it's we as a group are going to be doing this. And even if you haven't started that way, you can you can go in and say, OK, so we're going to start doing things a bit differently and introduce it gradually. Just do something differently each time until you build up to having that that kind of safe environment in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one of the well, as we get older, because I dealt with older students, we know whether or not we're making that mark by how quickly they run to your class so that they're not late. Yeah. But then you always have your latecomers who come in just so they can have that little interaction with you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, because they don't get that same kind of, yeah, they don't have that ability with others, but they're still there close to the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I, and I always welcomed them. It, it, it was, if you want to create the wrong atmosphere in your classroom, then you're going to say, where do you think you've been? How long should it take you to get here? Why weren't you here when the other, all that kind of thing. Right. Um, instead, if you say, welcome, glad you could join us, the seat's over there, and then just carry on talking. Mm-hmm. You know, doing yeah. what you were doing before they walked in. So you're acknowledging them, which is what they're after. Um, and they are welcomed to the group, but you haven't made a big issue out of it, and you can just carry on and keep that kind of um, safe atmosphere in the classroom. Right, because that would because you start off as Snow White, and all of a sudden you have the evil queen come in for a minute, and then it's back to Snow White, but you still have that lingering odor of the queen, right? <laughs> yeah, it's all part of the, the managing managing mm-hmm. the atmosphere in the classroom because you, you need to keep the the, the youngsters who are nervous need to be kept safe. So you can't let um, other students kind of dominate, but they have their needs as well. So it's it's about managing everything. And I don't think that it matters about age. I think that everybody at any age is the same way. Yeah, yeah. So because we don't know what happened earlier in the day for anybody, we don't know what's going on in their life. And exactly. everybody's daily life is very different. And just because we should have the skills, we don't know what has actually popped up for somebody within the last 24 hours or even the last week for them to have to deal with. Yeah, exactly. um, And if you spend the time finding out, you'll often think, how are these these students managing? How are they coping when they're carrying all that on their back? So mm -hmm. yes, making allowances for the, the burdens that some of them are carrying with them, I think is really important. Right. But you allow them the ability and try to help them adapt Mm. and adopt so they can, because that's part of their survival. Yeah. What's the most important is is to put them first. 
It's mm-hmm. so many teachers are looking at uh, what they're doing in a classroom from their own perspective. You know, this is the curriculum. This is what I have to teach. This is the amount of time I've got in which to teach it. Here's my lesson plan. <laughs> Without any reference to the student, whereas if we think about what impact is this going to have on the student? How are the students feeling today? Um, when I carry out this activity, what are they going to be doing? How is this going to impact on them? And if you put them and what's going on inside their heads, first before your own thoughts and your own comfort and your own way of doing things you're going to get a lot further and have them um, respond much more readily to what you're doing with them and it's much easier for the teacher to be the adapting one yeah yeah with with what they're doing and if you're an adept teacher then you Mm -hmm. know that you can turn on a dime as it were i don't know what's what's the term in england uh I'm not sure we have an equivalent, but I understand what you mean. Oh, okay. You pivot. You can do a sudden pivot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you can um, look at the students and you can say, okay, for some reason or other, I don't think what I had planned is going to work, but we're going to do it a different way today. So let's see how this works out and then we'll work through it. And so they become part of the conversation. They become part of the process. And then... um, they will work with you because you're all doing the same task together. Is that? Mm-hmm. And you are helping them to develop metacognition by doing that because mm-hmm. one of the things that you're doing is saying, okay, this isn't working. So how should we do this instead? Tell you what, let's try. And that's metacognition. So you're, you're modeling it for them. It also helps with regulation yes, because it also exactly. teaches too- regulation. Yeah, exactly. People often link the two words together. Metacognition and self-regulation are are often linked together. I that's that's interesting because I would never put the two of them together. <laughs> no, it's not what I would do, but you often do see them together and and it does depend on what people mean by self-regulation, whether they're talking about being able to regulate the way that you're thinking or whether they're mm-hmm. talking about regulating behavior. Um, but they do both come back to uh, decision making. So from that point of view, we could think, you know, behavior may well be um, subconscious, but it's based on that that database we were talking about. The way that a child behaves is as a result of previous experience and whatever they've got in their own subconscious database. Um, And so when when they um, behave the way that they do, it means they haven't yet been able to learn how to think metacognitively in order to change that, to realise that behaving that way is not going to be in their own best interests in the long run and be able to change that. So um, it is connected from that point of view and it's one of the ways that we can help them when we help them develop metacognition. Mm-hmm. That's why, why I always use that term, develop it, because students really do need help. I mean, for instance, I'm, I'm running a, um, a webinar this week for school leaders that's called Metacognition, the key to attendance, behaviour and engagement. Because those students who don't attend, those students who, who choose to behave um, in an unacceptable way, and those students who choose to disengage, they may be basing their decision on a subconscious thing, but they are still making a choice. And we have to help them to to learn how to think differently in order to make wiser choices. Well, in that case, I would ask whether or not they're afraid to show up and what is yeah. the cause of that fear. And the second one would be um, 
why don't they want to? What is keeping them and why don't they see the relevance in showing up? Yeah, exactly. And that's what you need to find out. And helping them to think metacognitively will help change that. Um, I used to work with some students at home. I would often work in schools with students that that schools were worried about. Um, But sometimes they would ask me to work with a child at home because they were not making it into school. Um, Mm -hmm. And that but it, it does require um, for, for children like that, it obviously does require some one-to-one work to, to help to help change the way they think in order to help them make wiser choices for themselves. There are... So, go on. No, go on. No, I was just, just going to say um, about the impact that... That, that not, is exactly what I was going to say. Go on, no. then. <laughs> so we're there. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about the impact on a child's education if they don't learn how to think metacognitively, um, which we've kind of discussed to some extent there. We've kind of mentioned a few things that, mm-hmm. that can be a problem. Um, for me, one of the really important things is that metacognition really needs three prerequisites, which is why I focus on developing metacognition rather than introducing metacognition into schools, which is what some schools do. Because before any student can think metacognitively, they have to have a positive self-concept. They have to have the ability to, they have to believe that they can achieve things, that by changing their mind, they can make a difference. So they have to have that positive self-concept. They have to understand how learning happens because you can't change the way that you are thinking about learning or the way that you are learning if you don't understand how that's taking place in the first place. So uh, in order to change it, you have to understand the process, which most students don't. Um, and that is, I'll refer to it at this point, that that kind of learning process for me involves challenge. In other words, something new, something different. If it wasn't new and different, you wouldn't learn from it. So it's something new, something different that feels challenging and uncomfortable because it's new. And yet we get children and students who will physically or mentally run away from a challenge. Then the next stage is experimenting with that, thinking, oh, this is interesting, um, and kind of engaging with it, experimenting with it, making all the mistakes so that you're feeding back to the brain the whole time um, about what is and isn't working. And then when you've worked it out and you know what the, the either the correct way of doing something is or what the correct answer is to something, you can then practice. And yet we've got children who are afraid to experiment with things. They're afraid to make mistakes. And they think that if they can't get it right first time, they might as well give up because they're not going to get not going to get it right with this kind of the concept of practice seems to have gone out the window when it comes to something academic so that's kind of the learning process that we've got children not really appreciating and then the other thing that the last prerequisite for thinking metacognitively is that they have to understand that they have a role to play because they've had this kind of passive role um, they need to appreciate that they have to do something that they have to be active in that process if it's going to to work and for me, one of the issues is, is that a lot of students are missing at least one of these, either the positive self-concept or the understanding of how learning happens or their appreciation of their own role in that process. Most people, I would say, are missing at least one and some students are missing all three. So thinking for yourself is discouraged in some educational settings. 
Um, teachers tend to think, and and I'm not not blaming the teachers for this. It's the system that that you've got to get through the curriculum. That there's no time for that kind of individuality. And if a child gets stuck. They have to ask the teacher. They don't know how to go about sorting it out for themselves. So you get these these um, students that have stopped working. They've they've put their hand up and are waiting and, and are kind of wasting a lot of the lesson with their hand up because they no sooner get started again after they've had the help, they need to put the hand up again. So you've got this, as you were saying, you've got this growing number of, of non-attenders because they are fearful of, of what happens when they get there. They feel such a, a lack of... Um, achievement um, that the, those that do go in are often behaving post pandemic there's an increase in poor behavior and there's an increase in um, or in a lack of engagement I've had teachers tell me that even students who were engaging pre-covid are now not engaging in the way that they did once before they've almost kind of given up so if you don't have a sense of achievement from what you're doing, you're going to get disheartened. So, um, and what's happening is that students are not learning in a way that is memorable for the brain. So they're not remembering things. The way that we teach them is not conducive to remembering. So they then do poorly in assessments or exams. So if they didn't feel bad about themselves before they started, they often do when they're finished. And so we've got we've got students leaving school. Um, who don't have the ability to think for themselves. They don't have the ability to make wise choices that are in their own best interest because they have never been taught how to think for themselves, how to think metacognitively. And as we said, that what a child carries with them inside their head is the most impactful aspect of any learning situation. So we really need to question what's going on inside students' heads. And that's something that a lot of schools don't bother to find out. Or a lot of the teachers. Yeah. And I'm going to put the onus on a lot of the teachers too. Okay. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> because, because, I, because I think, I believe that a lot of teachers are told that they need to do X, Y, and Z. And so they are under the impression that they have to teach to a test Mm -hmm. because we deal with assessments and the assessments will happen naturally if we allow the students to learn, Mm. not, not engaging them in this rote memorization kind of black and white manner, which is I feel stupid because I don't know the answer to that and I have to give you the right answer. I'm not allowed to say, this is what I think and this is where I'm going with it. Am I on the right track? They don't get that. They're told yes, no. It's sort of mathematical where no, you did the process wrong. That's why you got this wrong. Hmm. Well, explain to me, how do I do this? So do you believe... Along with that, do you believe that when we went into lockdown and everything went online, everybody just kind of chucked whatever they could into the online teaching and there was no real way for them to sit down with the students and actually work with them, that they needed to have that right or wrong, that they didn't, that there was not, they lost the community in the in a way, because yeah. there were so many distractions with other technology that was happening. And 
there were other things that were going on in the home. They were dealing with crises, um, families splitting up, all kinds of developments that happened. Do you think that yeah. that's what added to it? And so yeah. the students were kind of put into a hole and they just don't see why they need to climb out in order to do that because the yeah. teaching hasn't really changed in order to accommodate that. Yeah. I don't think they know how to, to climb out, to be honest. <clears throat> um, I think one of the issues with all the learning they were doing at home um, was that the moment they hit a snag, like I was saying earlier on, that you get so many students who are putting their hand up because they don't get it, um, or they stay very quiet. You get the two two different types, and you get the ones that just stay quiet and stay under the radar because they don't get it, and others whose hand is constantly up because they want they want to be told the next step, as it were. And the problem was at home was that the the students were getting stuck on bits of work that they were doing, and they the parents didn't know how to help them because they didn't know the curriculum, and so students had this constant kind of feeling defeated about what it was they were trying to achieve because every time they tried to do something they hit a snag they hit something they didn't understand and there was no one to ask there was no one to get the the help from and one of the things that's really important about learning is that you have to be able to link information together inside your head so this is why the rote learning although things like times tables and so on a bit of rote learning doesn't go amiss but um the the idea of remembering facts to write in exams doesn't allow for the questions that rely on you understanding those facts without naming them so that you can link them together. They'll ask a question where you need this fact and this fact, but they don't actually use the words that you're used to. They link the ideas together in another question and suddenly the student can't answer it because they don't recognise it as information that they do know about. They just haven't learnt to link them together inside their head. So normal traditional teaching doesn't make for these linkages that help make for a a more memorable learning and and real learning that stays put. Um, But then also you add to that the two years that students had in and out of school at home um, where they weren't getting um, any interaction really with with is that kind of. the, the expert they, they didn't have access to the expert to ask questions of as it were and but neither had they been taught to think for themselves students who have the ability to think metacognitively could have made more of that they would have survived better outside of school and obviously we do know that some of those those students who struggle in school felt more comfortable at home because they were away from what causes them stress but it doesn't necessarily mean that they learned a lot although I believe some did I think there there were some children who relieved of the stress of being in school Mm. were able to learn more effectively at home but again you don't know how effective that actual learning was because it learning is really only learning if it if it sticks because we do have those deficiencies in both math and reading mm-hmm. part of my thought was that when the students came back you start back at the very beginning and then you scaffold and do like a review just to make sure where the gaps actually are yeah. fill in those gaps and then you can move forward you may lose a quarter but you may be able to spring forward and start moving through other materials much faster with more success for all the students. Yeah. I think the problem was the amount of time that some students were out made that kind of going back and filling in the gaps too big a task because Mm -hmm. they some had missed two whole years. It depends which country you're in, but some had missed two whole years of teaching 
um, effectively. And, um, you know, some had, had kind of missed starting high school, for instance. I mean, in the UK, we've got students who are 11 years old go from um, a primary school to a, a high school. And some of them had kind of missed out on the introduction to that and were suddenly two years behind, as it were, which is I don't like to use that term behind because it's the, the curriculum that dictates that. And again, we're not kind of totally happy mm-hmm. with the idea of that that curriculum that doesn't allow students to to think for themselves do you think it would be in the students best interest if as they progress through skills that we just kind of move them up skill wise rather than promote them by grade or by year and so it's different students may be further ahead in one area but they're going to be behind in another Mm. so you know you don't have this link where Johnny got left behind and he's still in second year and everybody else is in third. And it was, there were different reasons for that, but it's not that he doesn't have the skills. Maybe it was because he just wasn't ready to move up with that class or whatever. But if, if the kids have the skills, then they can be promoted. But if they're lacking in those skills and that way we don't have this huge deficit. So we know where the kids are. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's it's a really difficult one because um, it doesn't happen so much in the UK because each year each year they move up to the next class. You know whether right. they have achieved a certain level or not, they just keep moving up mm-hmm. each year as a group. Right, social promotion. Um, very occasionally, um, due to kind of fairly dire circumstances, a child will be kept back a year, but it doesn't happen very often. Um, but it is difficult because there's there's talk all the time of personalized learning in other words allowing a student to go at their own pace but the the reality is that that doesn't happen well you have the parents who are worried about their child and how it's going to look in their social circles etc 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 oh yeah there there are a a lot of things involved there yeah mm -hmm. how do we help kids learn and develop this process so is there like a step-by-step kind of methodology in order to get the kids there or let's say that i have let's say that i have a high schooler who really hasn't gotten there yet and for whatever reason how would i work with that student it's one of the things that that i do because a lot of the students that i've worked with have been um, high school students it's obviously better if you can work on it when you when they're younger which I'll talk about in a minute but um, it's important that they get to know about their the way that their brain works so they know what's going on inside their head we've said that inside the student's head is the most important place and yet they often don't know what's going on inside their own head so to introduce them to their own brain and introduce them to the way that stu- that, that the brain learns is a really important starting point and the other thing is to find their strengths so that you're starting so they have some confidence and some self-esteem to start with Um, there are lots of different ways of doing that um, but to find some way of identifying what their strengths are and emphasizing those and recording them in some way and I don't mean um like saying, oh, yeah, but you're so kind, you're so good to other people, because they can see straight through that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when they see people being whizzy at maths and 
um, and what have we, they, they, they don't get fooled by you know, being told that they're kind or generous. So um, we want to find genuine strengths that, that we can emphasize as a starting point and then point out that, that, that they have those strengths because they come naturally. Those are things that come naturally to them and that we all have things that are natural, that we find easier and more comfortable but we also all have things that make us feel uncomfortable because they don't come naturally. And therefore, that's where we need support. And that opens a child up much more readily to, to being ready to be supported um, with with their learning. Um, and what I used to do is I used to spend about about 12 weeks or, you know, 12 hour, an hour a week for 12 weeks with a child working through my learner success pathway, which is designed to do that. It's designed to gradually help them get to know themselves, find their strengths, and then um, think about how to set themselves targets, how to plan for success, if you like, um, and then gradually pass responsibility onto them, teach them how to take responsibility for their own learning, and then give them some strategies and some methods that will help them with their memory and with their learning. And then they're away. What I used to do was actually visit the, the subject area that they found the most difficult and prove to them by doing that with them that they could now do things that they thought they couldn't do before. So it just takes it takes some time, but it's about getting them to understand what's going on inside their own heads. And that's a very personal thing, which is why we can't just call it thinking about thinking. <laughs> right, right. No, um, I can think of a ton of students and it's usually math. Yeah, or science. And and they say, I can't do math. And it's like, yeah. because you haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Don't say you cannot. Yeah. You just say, I'm not quite there yet. I'm still trying to figure it out. So let's sit down and you explain to me and we go through each thing. And then all of a sudden their confidence begins to build. Yeah. yeah. And they're able to start functioning. And um, I had one student who looked at me at one point and he said, you know what I discovered? And I said, what's that? And he said, I wasn't doing my homework. And then it's so much easier if you do the homework. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, then you don't have to hide. Yeah. You understand what they're talking about. Yeah. And pretty soon he was doing, he was in a higher level math. Yeah. And I said, how did you get in there? And he said, because I figured it out and now I love it. And yeah. I said, but you hated math. And he said, yeah. that's because I didn't understand it, but now I do. Yeah, exactly. Once they get a taste of success, they're away. Mm -hmm. And you'll see them get excited about all kinds of things. But a lot of it is to do with being able to think metacognitively. Um, and to figure out how to get to the get the resources in order to help them. Yeah, exactly. So but there's, there's a lot that we can do. Um, you know, if, if we use kind of specifically mentioned older ones, which was the group that I worked with, mm -hmm. I worked mostly 11 to 16, although I did work with some that were a bit younger and some that were a bit older. Um, but even as parents, one of the things that we can do is um, let them play. You know, don't always kind of guide everything that they do. Leave them to play. Let them find out things for themselves. Let them experience as much of the world as possible safely, keeping an eye on them, obviously. Um, but don't use a screen to keep them quiet was an obvious one because that will impair their ability to learn effectively in school. 
Um, but some of the other things that seem very simple and yet they are massive when it comes to helping a child develop a positive self-concept, which we said is a starting point for metacognition. And that's about always talking about them and to them in a positive way not using any derogatory language around them because we want them to believe in themselves. So we have to show that we believe in them and we not only need to believe in them, but we need to believe in ourselves as well because they will copy us. So we need to model a positive view of ourselves so that they model or copy a positive view of themselves. It's the normal to think positively about yourself. Um, and the other thing that we need to do, just, just sorry, just an example of that went through my head um, as I was talking is like you get so many parents. I've done it myself where you say, oh, I was rubbish at maths with, at maths at school uh, where you're trying to empathize. You're trying to make them feel better about the fact that you were rubbish. Um, but, but you're putting the idea of rubbish inside their head. So we don't want to do that. We have to try and find a way of, of remaining positive about ourselves and our abilities, model that for them, help them believe in themselves. But we also need to have a positive view of school because a lot of parents with students who are not doing so well are concerned or even angry about what the school is not doing for their child. Um, and can be quite um, derogatory about the school. And that doesn't help because your child has to go to that school every day. It's That's where their life is. So right. always present a positive view of school, whatever you're thinking of it, that make, make it a safe place for your child to be by having or demonstrating a positive view of school. And you can also watch out for any negative self-talk on the part of your child because it, particularly if you encourage them to talk about their experiences while they're talking, you'll hear things like, I can't do this or I can't do that or I'm rubbish at this and so on. And you can hear the negativity. So then you've got the chance to start correcting that. And also don't accept any limitations. They may have limitations. There may be, we, we made that whole list of barriers earlier on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there is so much that could get in the way of a child's learning. Um, whereas if we don't let that be a limitation, so we could say, yes, that's an issue for you, but let's work out how we can get around that so that they don't see it as something that's holding them back. They don't use it as an excuse. Well, I can't do this because um, there's never there should never be a reason why they are um, unable to do something because there's always a way if we help them work that out. You brought up something really interesting. Yeah. Not not explicitly. Yeah. But it makes me think, how impactful is how a child or a parent deal with failure? Yeah. How impactful is that on the development yeah. of metacognition? Yeah, very much so. Uh, and it was actually the point I was going to make next, so you're one step ahead oh. of me. <laughs> oh. yeah. but, but we have to help them appreciate what the learning process looks like remember we've just talked about kind of improving their self-concept but we also need to help them understand what the learning process is and that is if you remember challenge being prepared to face challenge so we shouldn't run away from challenge we should go oh this is a bit tricky <laughs> how are we going to deal with this rather than than kind of showing some kind of fear or ignoring something because it feels a bit too challenging so they see us facing challenge and standing up to it and sitting with the discomfort that challenge brings because it's new and different 
but then also the idea of mistakes. We need children to see us make mistakes and and work our way through it and acknowledge that we've made mistakes. And I don't mean necessarily these kind of big emotional mistakes within families, but just simple things. Don't be afraid to say, oh, I got that wrong. Um, And then talk out loud about how, how you're putting it right, because you've discovered um, that you've discovered a new piece of information that's made a difference, that's helping lead you to kind of in a different direction. Um, and the same with practice. We, we want children to feel that they're not going to get things right first time. So we need to say that, oh, I tried that, not going to get it right first time, but let's have a go, let's keep going. I'm going to have another go and I'm going to have another go. So they get the idea that, that things come to us through practice. And but we the, also need... Don't we also need to teach them, though? I'm sorry to interrupt. That's right. Don't we also need to teach them, though, that there is a point where we need to just say, you know what? I'm going to shove that off. I'm going to go do something else and come back to this later. Yeah. Because otherwise they will sit there and they will just bang their head on the table. Yeah. And they will go absolutely nowhere. And that just feeds into the negative aspects of doing whatever it is that they're doing. And this is one of the reasons, I I didn't go into details earlier on, but one of the reasons why I always start with explaining their brains to them, because actually there's a a part of your brain that's that's highly involved in learning called the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And what that does is kind of um, help you throw ideas around in your head. (laughs) Um, And when you stop, if something gets too much and you stop, your hippocampus keeps working on it. It keeps engaging with other parts of your brain to try and make sense of it, even though you are not thinking about it. It's an unconscious thing. So actually giving giving your brain a break from something that is feeling too stressful because you've reached a point where, you, as you say, you're starting to bang your head against the wall about it. The, the right thing to do is to take a break and allow the, your brain to carry on working on it without you being aware of it. And it w- won't feel as challenging when you come back to it. So again, that's that's about the students be, becoming familiar with the way the brain actually works. Um, go on. There is research that also says that in the middle of a class, after about 20 minutes of work, yeah, you should take a five-minute brain break yeah, yeah. for the students and just teach them how to do that. And that exactly. way they regulate their learning yeah. and they understand that they don't need to be highly intensive about yeah. whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. I, I was doing that in my classes 20 years ago, Tony. <laughs> brain breaks were built into my classes even then. <laughs> a pioneer. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've um, it's been like um, pushing through treacle a lot of the time. I felt like a lone voice much of the time, but there's there's far more evidence nowadays, which makes it a bit easier anyway. Um, but I think another thing that that helps is we were saying about kind of modelling this idea of um, the way that you learn through challenge and making mistakes and, and normalising that it's important that we also let students, whether we're parents or teachers, see us changing our minds. Because that's that's kind of the whole concept behind metacognition is the ability to change your mind when something's not working. And so if they get this kind of fixed mindset where you, know, you, you mustn't be seen to make a mistake and you mustn't be seen to change your mind because that's a weak thing to do, we need to actually model 
um, changing our minds, but showing them the reasons why. You could say, I used to think this, but I changed my mind because, and, th- and then tell them about the new piece of information that's made a difference for you. You now feel differently about something because of that extra piece of information. So they get this idea that this constant changing your mind is actually what learning is all about. And you can make much more effective decisions for yourself if you allow yourself to change your mind sometimes. How often do you bring up growth mindset with the students? I don't bring it up as a as a separate concept. For me, it's built. The growth mindset is built into okay. everything that I do. Right. So I don't. I'll occasionally mention, um, you know, fixed fixed thinking that that decide. But because I'm teaching them how to change their mind, it doesn't really come up as a discussion between fixed mm-hmm. and, and growth. Doesn't really come up. Um, I could, believe it or not, I've, I've got a little note to myself here to to, to suggest to you um, helping students remove the word can't from their vocabulary. But you've already mentioned that. <laughs> um, well, I, th- I think that it's one of those things where they might say, I can't do it. And you say, probably not yet. Yeah. Although I must say, I don't even use that term. I'll, I'll tell you why, because it's a common way of dealing with it, um, is that the, the problem with the word can't is that the subconscious brain hears the word can't and believes it. The subconscious brain doesn't think for itself. It follows the, the guidance that given to it by the thinking brain. Um, so if the thinking brain is saying, I can't, the subconscious brain goes, oh, OK, then, and make sure that you can't do it. So if we say I can't do it yet, the subconscious brain is still hearing can't. So we really need to get rid of the word can't altogether. So I prefer to teach students how to say, I can do this. I just need some help. Because then you're telling the subconscious brain, it hears the word can and believes it because it doesn't think for itself. Um but you've given it a solution as well. It feels more honest. It feels true to the subconscious brain that you've kind of, you've got a solution there. You're going to get help and that's how you're going to be able to do it. Um, and, and that seems to work quite well to get students to say that. One of my students in the past used to say, untangle that knot. Yeah. <laughs> and try it again. Yeah. Yeah, anything, anything that has a positive um, bent on it that will help them to get away from the idea that they are unable to achieve something. They have to believe mm-hmm. that they can do it and then they'll be able to. Belief is huge. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of scientific research now that shows that, you know, what, what we believe about our own abilities, um, we put a lot of limitations on ourselves as a result of what we believe to be true about ourselves. Um, I think the the other thing that's really important is what we praise students for. Well, this is kind of parents and teachers kind of mixed in together, is that we need to praise, think, thinking again about that kind of fixed and growth mindset, we need to praise effort and persistence, uh, not what they produce. Um, I've seen teachers like praising students for... Um, handing in neat work well for handing in work for it being neat for work that's been completed and yet that work could easily be um, questions that they've answered from a book they found the answers in a book they haven't they've not learned anything and so if we start praising 
the non-learning side of of education and then students then see that the their purpose and what they're trying to achieve is neat work finished work <laughs> work that's correct according to the textbook etc um, and so they don't appreciate that, that that untangling the knot that you just mentioned the fact that there's going to be effort involved and persistence and so you get teachers who see a piece of untidy work where the student has got lots of crossing out, whereas in fact they're thinking metacognitively. They're trying things out, they're experimenting with it, and when something doesn't work, they're changing their minds. And so that's that's what should be praised. <laughs> oh, I can see you've been working really hard on this. I can see that you've been, been thinking this through and changing your mind as you've gone along. That's brilliant. And yet that's not what teachers tend to praise. So we need to think very carefully about... Uh, how we make students feel and where we put the emphasis on what it is we want them to achieve. It's not about the appearance. It's about yeah. the actual meat of the learning. Yeah. And and you can have a whole book full of neat work that the, and the child's not learned anything at all. So it's about, again, we're back to this idea. It's about what's going on inside the learner's head, <laughs> not, not what they've got written in the book. Um, now, and that's, Sorry, were you going to say something? No, go ahead. I was just going to say that that some teachers um, introduce the idea of metacognition in their classroom. They they know it's a good thing, particularly in the UK, where we had a report in I think it was two thousand and eighteen or nineteen from the um, Education Endowment Foundation, who um, held metacognition up as being one one of the most effective ways of supporting student progress. So schools kind of latched onto that and thought, okay, we need to be doing some metacognition, which is not something you can actually do because it's about what's going on inside students' heads. But so teachers were kind of, um, the way that they were introduced to metacognition was more using this these series of templates that have questions on them that students need to ask themselves. So it's about helping students to reflect, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they're expected to um, ask themselves questions relating to uh, how they're setting about preparing to do a piece of work, um, questions about kind of monitoring as they are working, and then other questions they can ask themselves to evaluate what they've done when they've done it. Now, that's helpful, and that makes students more independent. They haven't got their hand up all the time waiting for the teacher to, to help them because they, they know the, the process, they know the questions to ask themselves. But... So many students are not ready to think that way for all the reasons that we have already mentioned. Um, so right. that's why I would say that above all, we need to be aware of the need to develop metacognition in learners rather than presuming that it's already there. I agree. I mean, it's so obvious, though. <laughs> yeah. That's why I love. That's why I love listening to you speak is because it's like slapping me across the face and saying, wake up, snap out of it. This is yeah. right here. It's all right in front of your face. Yeah. And the answers are all in your hands. And it's, it, mm. you know, it's just there for everybody. Yeah. And, and I think some of that is the result of a conscious decision that I made um, years ago, not to follow an academic route with all of this. I mean, I had the capability to to be an academic and to think about all of this in, in an academic way. And I would love to do a PhD. <laughs> I 
um, and, and, and study all of this. But to my mind, that then does nothing actually happens. If you've got everybody doing the research and you've got everybody kind of um, reading, reading articles and papers going, oh, this is great stuff and nobody does anything with it, um, there's no point. So I decided to come down on the side of the students. I always advocate on the part of the students. So I work with um, uh, parents, school leaders, teachers and support staff who are the, the, the adults that surround any, any learner um, and try and help them know how to develop metacognition in learners from their own perspective and doing it all without using all the the you know, neuroscientific jargon or the, um, mm-hmm. all the other jargon that I could use, uh, I've chosen not to do that. And, and s- some people don't like that. Some people feel that I'm, I'm you know, it's too simplistic. But as you said, <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Um, that. That is my point, is I'm trying to wake everybody up to the fact that it is, it is so straightforward. It's no, mm-hmm. it, metacognition is not something complicated if you just go about doing something with it instead of talking about it. And have you ever written any published books? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I want the time to write a book. I do have a book in mind, um, but I do, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and I do write a newsletter every week on LinkedIn. We're up to episode, this week will be episode uh, 34, um, where I, I write, you know, articles about metacognition. So um, if, if people are on LinkedIn, please look me up. Um, Liz Keeble as in K-E-A-B-L-E um, and you'll find me on there and as I say there's all those newsletters that can be be read um, I've, got, I've got a few bits and pieces on my uh, website some articles that I wrote before I started using the word metacognition because I was avoiding it uh, what I was doing was based around it, but um, it wasn't a word that people were particularly familiar with, and I didn't want to bog them down with it. But because it's become a bit of a byword in education, um, I decided I ought to start using it. So there's lots of articles on the website that I wrote before um, I started using that word. So although the, there's other information about metacognition on the website, so that is lizkeeble.com. Again, Keeble, K-E-A-B-L-E. Um, and what people could do as well, if they want to, is um, there's, a, there's a free download, the A to Z of Supporting Learner Achievement, which again was written before I started using the word metacognition freely. Um, but it was it's based on a whole series of LinkedIn posts that I did um, a year or two back. And I wrote uh, this booklet. It's kind of, I think it's about 80 pages booklet. Um, about supporting learner achievement which is free to download from the website Um, and when you do that then it means that that your um, email address will go into the database and then from then on you'll get information about what I'm doing when I'm running it you know what help there is out there so I'm kind of I'm out there doing it I just haven't got around to writing the book yet (laughs) You could just compile everything and put it all yeah, together. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the that's the general idea. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm waiting to retire, and then I might have the time. <laughs> no, I am so grateful to you because we've learned so much, and I still have. There are more questions that are formulating in my <laughs> tiny little brain 
for you. So um, I'm going to throw this out to you. Would you be willing to come back at some point? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Oh, if and, we haven't, and, haven't exhausted the topic. I don't think we have. No. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Liz. You're welcome, Tony. And I really am grateful to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to be here. You know, I'm, I'm happy. It's my favorite subject. So talking about it is, is time well spent as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Definitely. And I will have all your information down in the show notes and mm -hmm. how people can find out more about you. Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Tony. It's good to see you again. What a wealth of information. How much more enriched we are with our toolbox in working with students. It gives us so much more to think about every day and every day we can add to this toolbox of working with students and making their experience far greater. And I owe so much to Liz for taking the time to be with us. So I want to thank her. I want to thank you please hit that subscribe button because we're going to have more coming down the pike. And please share this. And as always, it was wonderful spending time with you. And we'll see you again very soon. Bye-bye.